I encourage everyone to take a moment and breathe and take a tea cheers with a Jiri tea. A Jiri tea recognizes the beauty in shared stories and shared opportunities. Ajiri sources award-winning tea from Kenya, employs women in the region to handcraft the labels, and sends 100% of the profits back to the region to support orphan education. Save 10% on your order of Kenyan teas and coffee with the code BEAUTIFULLYHUMAN at ajiritea.com. A-J-I-R-I-T.com. Tea mugs up! Hello, and welcome to the Beautifully Human Podcast. I'm Nick Sheesby. In this podcast, I speak with beautiful humans from all around the world, sharing with you their incredible stories, revealing the power in every human story to spread love and humanity to a world that is in desperate need of it, to show that we can all connect in beautiful ways, no matter where we come from or what we look like. What you will find out is that we are all beautifully human. Let's all be beautifully human. Hello and welcome again to another episode of the Beautifully Human podcast. Thanks for joining us from wherever you are in the world. Today I am hanging out with Stephen Murray and what a journey his life has been. Writing, tech companies, growing up in Africa and in London Man, it is just a really remarkable story. He's such a kind, kind man. We have a really amazing conversation. I truly hope you enjoy it. If you enjoy this podcast, follow along on Spotify and on Instagram. Rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It gets these conversations out to more people, and it greatly helps. I hope you enjoy this conversation. So I love to start these conversations off with a very broad and open-ended question and let you take it wherever you want and we'll flow with that conversation and say, tell me the story of your life, Stephen. Wow. (laughs) Well, it hasn't been dull. I'll give you that, Nick. Um, I'm hoping. I've I've seen, I've I've looked a little bit at it and I'm I'm excited to hear uh, it from you. Yeah, I was born in England. Um, uh, my parents, neither of them finished high school because they were around during World War Two. So they were very young parents. And um, at a very young age, they decided to move to Southern Africa. And it was a very different world then back in the, it was in the late 50s back then. And it took my dad three days to fly there from England to the middle of Africa. That's how different air traffic was. Wow. And my mother followed behind three months later and uh, with myself and my brother and my sister. And we took um, the boat from Southampton in England all the way to Cape Town and then up by train, um, steam train no less, through the Kalahari Desert to Salisbury, what was then in southern Rhodesia, it's now Zimbabwe. And um, the family kind of moved around quite a bit. We were in southern Rhodesia. The family then moved to Basutland, and there was no bo- uh, there was no schools there, so I was sent to boarding school in South Africa. And when I finished my education, I just graduated from high school. I'm not a college graduate at all. Uh, I went back to live in England went back and lived in London and then it was in the late 60s and that was a great time to be in London you know this yeah London in the swinging six and um it was a fun time but it was tough I was by myself and it was tough to make ends meet but you know you make the best of the hand you're dealt and then after seven years of living in London which was very very enjoyable because I got to see a lot of culture a lot of theater um they say if you tire of London, you tire of life. And it's absolutely true. There's always something in London. Yeah. And I got to travel extensively throughout Europe, which was an added bonus. But I then got the chance offer of a job in Los Angeles, California. And I was kind of tired of all the the rains in England, the weather's dreadful, it's cold in the winters and that 
the range just grain drones on and on for months on end and the idea of sunshine and palm trees and the Pacific Ocean was very appealing. So I cast caution to the wind. I'd never been to America and I just packed up and came. I had a job to come to and I came here with $200 in my pocket and two suitcases and that was it. Amazing. And um, I had 17 great years, sorry, 27 great years in Southern California. And then my business partner and myself, we decided to move our computer business to Las Vegas, Nevada. It was you know, more business friendly and Los Angeles was getting a little bit too crowded. But while I was in California and having a, my own computer software business also enabled me to travel across the globe. And um, I've traveled to 40 countries on all five continents, um, some very interesting places. And as we started to get towards retirement, I suddenly thought, you know, I've been to all these countries. I'd like to write a book on my travels and experiences. I thought that would have been a fun read, don't you? For um, sure. But I guess the publishers didn't think so. And they said, I needed to be writing women's fiction. Hmm. Well, I'm a bachelor, Nick. I've never been married. What in the world do I know about women's fiction? But I, I discovered a joy of writing and I thought, you know what? I've got to find something to write about. And Las Vegas, although we're known for Sin City, we are also the marriage capital of the world. So it's a strange dichotomy. Sure, yeah. You know, people come here from all over the world to get married and tie the knot and it's... Um, a huge boost to the Las Vegas economy. It's over $2 billion worth of business a year. So I stumbled across the idea of writing about a fictional Las Vegas wedding chapel. And the reader gets to spend the day there. And they meet all these couples, fictional couples, as they come and go and what their stories are, why they've chosen to get married in Las Vegas. And, you know, love does mean different things to different people. It's not a one-size-fits-all. So I wrote it and um, put it away in the back burner and just thought, well, that was a fun experiment. And um, by then I got to meet a few authors and saw they were writing different things. And I thought, I kind of like to write a murder mystery. And I spent a couple of years writing it and um, that was a load of fun, Murder Aboard the Queen Elizabeth II. And then I found out about a company that helps you publish books and they help edit and do the design cover so I met with them and um, he said oh scratch your murder mystery book he said you've got to get your wedding chapel book out there I said you're kidding I don't even have a title for it <laughs> and um, he said well I'll help you with that so I went with what he said he was the expert so I took it and it's taken me on a whole different journey not to travel across the world but um I've met so many people, so many authors, spoken at so many different places, different venues, senior centers, art galleries, met so many people. And much to my pleasant surprise, it spawned a sequel. People want to know what happened to the couples after they left the chapel. Uh, yeah. So um, that was a fun experience because I had never planned there being follow-up stories and I had to come up with follow-up <laughs> stories for everybody. Yeah. And... Um, so that was fun, and I wrote that and got that published, and I got my murder mystery published, and then I wrote another book, um, Discreetly Yours, um, that's a crime fiction book that's set in Las Vegas, and that got published, and I'm now writing a nice, warm, fuzzy, lovely Christmas story. It's oh, all Christmas. It's 100% mush and goo and love and warmth. It's a typical Hallmark Christmas story. So um, yeah. uh, so that's basically the long and the short of it, Nick. Well, I mean, Christmas sells, I will say that. Hallmark movies, books, I mean, that's a good, that's a good market to get into. Well, Nick, the, the joy of writing for me anyway, well, the joy of anything for me is probably is, is, is for you, it has to be a challenge. Yeah. It can't be something that comes easy. There's no fun. You know, right. if something just falls in your lap. There's nothing like having to put forth that effort getting in in the minds of things. And 
I have discovered a joy in writing in multiple genres. Um, and they've all been kind of tough. The, the last published book, Discreetly Yours, is about three very high-class escort ladies. They work for an escort agency. And they're very high-class. They're intelligent. They're beautiful. They're elegant, sophisticated. But the guy that runs the agent she treats them like dirt. So they come up with the perfect crime to kill, kill him. And that was a tough ride. I mean, uh, let me just make clear to your listeners, I did no research on escort agents. <laughs> it's 100% imagination or figment of my imagination. Sure, yeah. But getting in the minds of women for a start was challenging. Yeah. Women who are escorts was also challenging. And what they've got to be going through to reach the point that they want to murder somebody. That was, right. that was a very challenging book. So when I finished that and it had sapped all my strength and energy, I thought my next book's just got to be pure, easy, and the other way, you know, love yeah. and love and affection. Yeah. I have you so. So when you're when you're writing, what is what is your typical time frame like for researching and then from like beginning to when you actually get it out? I know it, I'm sure it varies every time, but what do you what's your typical time frame on that? I, it's typically about two years. Um, Nick, um, the first book I got published in 2013. The next one was in 2015. Then the murder mystery came out in 2017 and discreetly yours came out in 2019. I have to confess, I don't do research for my books at all. Um, they say write about what, what you know, and I break all the rules. I, I write about <laughs> what I don't know. Yeah. I don't know about murder. I don't know about escorts. I don't know about wedding chapels. I Fair. didn't interview couples that have got married in wedding chapels. It's 100% imagination. The only, um, the only times when there's been research in the indiscreetly yours when they murdered the guy, and um, it's not a mystery as to whether they did it. The mystery comes as do they get away with it or not? Gotcha. And, um, have they come up with the perfect crime as they think they have, or did they overlook one small thing that brings the whole lot tumbling down around them? And I had to get some legal advice on that. So I sure. spoke to the court reporter about court proceedings and attorneys and judges and so on and so forth. I got a little bit of help there. Yeah. And a murder aboard the Queen Elizabeth II, um, my murder mystery, um, I did take a little, uh, I had traveled on the QE2 myself as one of my trips um, across the world. And I thought that would be a perfect place to set this murder because the ship's leaving from London or England and going to New York and the murder's got to be solved before the ship docks, otherwise the parties scatter. Right. So uh, uh, I was able to rely on a little bit of personal knowledge. Sure, that, yeah. But there's no... Um, there's no real research. It's just all imagination. Yeah. So it's fun. And I'm hoping to get the Christmas book out this year. It's been delayed a little bit because, you know, last year with COVID and we were taking care of an elderly gentleman, my business partner's father, he was 99 and uh, we were having to spend a lot of time with him, which detracted, but sure. you know, it was the right thing to do. I don't regret yeah, it. Absolutely. Um, so there's been a little bit of delay in getting that one finished, but I'm still hoping to get it out by this Christmas. All right. Yeah, you got you got some time. I believe you'll get it yep. there. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it's all in the put it in the hands of the universe. You know exactly, exactly. Um, all right. So I have uh, so many other questions too about about your story. Well, um, so you took a boat from England to Southern Africa. How long were you on that when you were that young? Seven, it was, then it was, I don't know what it takes now, Nick. Uh, then it was two weeks. Okay. And then the train from from Cape Town to Salisbury, I think it was like two days. Wow. Again, it was in the days when it was steam train then. It wasn't electric trains like they are now. It wasn't these high-speed 
railways they're talking about as one of these real slow chuggalos with the steam tube chewing that you see yeah. in all these old westerns on TV. <laughs> you know, it's one of those. And right. Um, that's amazing. And uh, so what was what was your childhood like growing up in Salisbury? Um, you know, I think when you're kids, you adapt very easily. You know, it didn't occur to us when we left England and went to live in, in southern Rhodesia. We're not aware that this is something that not many people were doing at the time. You just figure that, well, people just move around the world. Um, yeah. It was a great experience. When I went back to England, I realized what a different life I had had growing up in Africa. One, I think, was much healthier because it, there was a lot of outdoors life, a lot of fresh air. Um, we played a lot of sports um, at school, uh, tennis and football and cricket and all of that kind of stuff. Round the year, because the, the climate was so conducive. And yeah. in England, we just didn't have all those outdoor sports, you know, because sure. it rains for so many months of the year. So. We're kind of stuck indoors a lot. Um, there were certain things that we didn't necessarily have. We didn't have the culture, certainly, of living in England. Right. Uh, we didn't have all the libraries and the museums and things like that. And for the early part, we didn't even have TV there. So the one advantage was I think we spent more time as a family together yeah. than perhaps families do now. You know, they watch TV more and DVDs and what have you. We used to sit and play board games like Monopoly or play card games and things like that. Uh, and we always sat around the dinner table at nighttime and had dinner. There was no TV to watch, but yeah. you know, now there are TV dinners. And I, so I think um, I think it was a better outdoor life. Yeah. When we moved to Basutland, I had to go to boarding school. I wasn't so thrilled about that, you know. <laughs> sent away from home and it was like a military academy it was very very strict and wow. um strict on uniforms and the life was ruled by bells you know a bell to wake you up a bell to get in the shower a bell to get out of the dormitory a bell to go for breakfast and um i wasn't too keen with that rigid discipline but right i think it did me well for the later years when i went to england i was only 18 by myself and I was able to survive yeah and now you hear no kids they're still living with their parents at 40 you know right <laughs> yeah no kidding yeah um I also I feel like because you didn't have all of those elements in your life at that age it probably helped massively with your creativity that has lent itself through your life to your writing and just other parts of your life as well because when you don't have those, those, those parts of your life, you have to just create and f invent what your, you know, your, your reality, and the fun that you're having. I think there's a lot of truth in that, Nick. I, I don't know how much was actually serendipity or um, just the universe's direction. I mean, I had never, if somebody had told me when I was growing up. It, Certainly when we lived in Basutland, the population of the capital city then was 2,000 people. Wow. That's the capital city of a country. So, I mean, that gives you an idea of how primitive it was. And there was only one road that was tarmacked, and that was for a mile. The rest were just dirt roads. Um, and if somebody had said to me, you know, 40, 50 years from now, you're going to be living in Las Vegas, <laughs> Um, the United States, and you'll be um, you'll be writing books and have four books self-published. I would have said you're nuts. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> just right. the leap of how would I ever get to America, let alone to Las Vegas and writing books. And even when I came to writing the books, it was pretty late in life. It wasn't something that I had a, a passion for. I just suddenly thought I'd, I'd travel so much. I wanted to put the experiences down in the different cultures. And it was through that that I discovered a joy of writing. But yeah. I'd never taken a writing class in my life. 
Yeah, that's so neat. And it, I was actually pretty shocked when you said that you, especially because I've traveled, I've been fortunate to travel quite a bit as well. And I've been thinking of writing my own version of basically what you said you wrote and it didn't get picked up. And I was like, man, it sounds like something I would write, also want to read. Um, so what what was it about it that they thought wasn't wasn't something that would be publishable? Well, you know, um, Nick, I think to be quite honest, it probably would have been publishable. Oh, okay. Um, what happened when I finished writing it, um, I'd spent a couple of years putting it all together and then I didn't know how to publish it. So I did a little Google search and I found there was this writer's group that meets about two miles from where I live once a month. So I thought, oh, I'm, I'm going to pop down there and maybe somebody there can give me a hint as to what to do. Well, when I got there, the guest speaker that night was a publisher. But what I wasn't aware of, she only publishes women's fiction. So gotcha. that was what she was pushing. And she started her pitch by saying, you know, if you're writing anything other than women's fiction, forget it, it's not going to sell. But of course, I was devastated. But I was very shy at the time, and I felt very intimidated being in this group of 50 or 60 authors. I'd never met any authors sure. in my life, and I just felt very intimidated. And especially after she finished speaking, they had to do all these quizzes with quotes from books and who wrote this and who wrote that. So, oh my, what am I doing here amongst all these intellectual types? Um, <laughs> sure. But that's what I went away with. But as I got to know more authors, I and I should have realized there are authors out there selling other books, but you know, they're the ones that are selling are people like Daniel Steele or Stephen King and people of that nature. They're well known, but if you're an independent author, it's harder. Um, and I found out that you know, my other books have sold, it doesn't have to be women's fiction, you know, my um discreetly yours is a crime fiction and murder aboard the qe2 is a it's a uh, murder mystery um the only thing all my books are all in different genres but the only thing they all have in common is they're all fun easy reads yeah. um, there's no graphic sex in them there's no expletives in them they're wholesome fun and believe it or not even the one about the three escorts it's an easy read. Your grandmother could read it. In <laughs> fact, where it sells really well, believe it or not, I go and speak at a lot of senior centers here in Las Vegas. And they're wow. always, they always like to have people from the outside come in and talk to them. You know, a lot of them don't have families anymore and their friends have passed away. And they like it when somebody from the outside world comes in and chats them. And I talk about all four books and then afterwards they come up and buy them. And the one that's the biggest seller, believe it or not, is discreetly yours, the one about the three high-class escorts. Wow. But I do let them all know there's no graphic sex, there's no sure. violence, there's no yeah. expedience. So they know it's a fun, pure, easy read. Yeah. That's so neat. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> it's so cool, just the avenues, like, like you said, how in life you have just no idea and how you were told, or, or if you were told when you were a kid, growing up in Africa that you'd be in Las Vegas and you'd be doing these sorts of things. Like it's so fun to, to sit and be like what your life expectation is as a child versus like where you end up. And you're like, I never would have thought these yeah. kind of things could happen. And it's so neat to watch your story play out. At least it is for me. Yeah. It, well, and it hasn't always, everything hasn't come easy. Uh, but then I, I don't think everything should come easy to everybody. Um, right. Again, um, I think we have to try and look and see the glass as half full as opposed to half empty and hopefully see it as possibly potentially overflowing. Yeah. Um, I think we, we, we have little bad things or setbacks in our lives occasionally, and as much as we might not like them, I think they're necessary to help us keep our focus and or keep things in perspective. And sometimes stop and appreciate the good fortune that we do have, whether it's health, whether it's your home, whether it's your career, whether it's your family or friends. Yeah. 
your loved one, your spouse, your better half. Um, sometimes we need to be given those little jolts and reminders, I think. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my worst, the worst possible part of my life kind of put me on this path of really knowing that I needed to put out more beauty into the world because I was told at 33 that I might not make it through the night because of my drinking habit. I was at the beginning oh stages of liver failure. So I was sitting there looking at what I was thinking might be my last night on this earth. And then I, as I moved forward, I was like, okay, I need to one, stay alive. I need to never drink again. And I need to start making sure that every single day that I am moving forward with purpose and taking chances and doing things that, that are good for me and that I want to do and that I'm not playing it safe. And that like you, I mean, taking chances and going to London when you're 18 and then coming to the States when you'd never been here. It, it's, it's, it is hard times that get us to, to beautiful points of life and also just stepping out and taking chances when you don't know what's going to come next. Well, that, that's very true, Nick. I think it's probably tougher for you. Um, you know, when I first left Africa and went to England, so I said, yes, I was only 17 or 18, and I had like about $25, $30 in my pocket. But sometimes when you're young, that's a question of fools rush in where wise men fear to tread. If I'd have been much older and thought about it and analyzed it, I would never have made the move. Of and course, the same yeah. when I left England and went to America. It just seemed a glamorous opportunity and a wonderful opportunity. And I thought, hey, fly for it. And everyone was saying, you know, you've never been to America. What if you don't like it? Well, you know, you're giving up your job, you're giving up your business, you're giving up your home, you sold your car and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I was young and again, um, I was, what, 25 when I came here and just cast caution to win. But you were 33. And so you had to make a very conscious decision. Yours wasn't just um, um, a, a childhood whimsical right. fancy. You were presented with a very tough choice that you had to make. And um, clearly, you obviously made the wise one. And um, you probably look back on those days now and are thankful for where you come to. It sounds like you've come so far. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've really done a, a 360 degree turnaround, it looks like or sounds like. Yeah, I mean, it was either either that or I wouldn't exist and we wouldn't be having these convers this conversation. I would have had wouldn't have had any conversations that I've had. I wouldn't have had any more experiences if I hadn't just said, "All right, I can never drink again," and then started pushing myself to get away from that and just make wiser decisions in that part of my life and then still take chances as I I've, I've worked in the music industry for 16 years now. So mm -hmm. even going back further to where, when I started in the music industry, I had no money and I had no idea what that future would be like. If I jumped into the music industry, I just thought it was a glamorous fun job that I would get to travel. And so I was like, let's do it. And then it ended up 16 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's similar. I was 21 years old and somebody called and was like, Hey, do you want to come on tour? And I said, well, hell yeah, let's do it. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of worked itself out and it gave me some crazy moments. It gave me some bad moments. It's given me some moments where I was just like, I had no idea that this could ever happen, but it was, it was beautiful. It was a really nice, just take that risk as a young person again and just like throw caution to the wind and let's roll let's go for it let's see what happens in life and make it make it happen make it work yes. yeah yes. so um Boy, tell we never look back at all well i mean the first time i truly looked back was like when i was sitting there in my hospital bed because i then i had to because i was thought it might not i might not go past that night so i was looking back into my life as like what did i do did i enjoy myself looking at the experiences it wasn't the money that i had or anything like that it was just really just saying did i do the best and the most with my time here yes. and i i had a really nice moment being like you know what i i did 
live life fully and no one can ever take that from me so i was at least happy with that and i figured mm -hmm. out that i wanted to live and move forward so getting myself healthy came with that which was really beautiful cool. so yeah but you, the, the important thing it seems um that's from talking with you um you're giving back and that's so important too you know it, it is so important that we we all give back because yeah. we are so blessed and we're so fortunate with what we have and you're actually doing that you know not unfortunately not everybody does but you literally are you're, you're giving back and making a positive impact and that's so important and that should give you a lot of satisfaction pride and pleasure yeah. at the same time no i appreciate that it it is it it's it's my way of just like enjoying my life and i mean you can understand you'll understand this when i say this like traveling has just opened my head up to so much in my life up and just the cultural experiences that it, it constantly like you cannot travel without opening yourself and so the conversations that i've had the people that i've met all over the world and then just the the hatred that i see coming out of people i'm like there can't be this kind of person that is just so beautiful from somewhere else in the world and then this and i and i know it does happen but like i want to talk to someone who's grown up in Africa and it's very similar, but couldn't be farther away than where I grew up in Ohio. And then be like, there's no reason to hate these people. Like open your mind, let's talk, let's have these conversations and let's just spread the love around and, and learn from each other. I, I'm learning so much from your life. I know there's stuff to learn, be learned from my life. So it is giving back. It's it's putting it out there of we are all human. We're all beautiful. There's a human race and we all should be more loving and kind and empathetic and humane to each other. So that's that's what I'm pushing with, with this podcast, with these yes. conversations. Yes, and one of the keys that you mentioned there, Nick, is is the, the travel and it's been it's certainly been my experience, no matter where I've gone, whether it's Europe or Africa or Asia or Southern America. Um, you know, we're always being told how much we're uh, as Americans we're hated throughout the world. And I, I have to tell you, I've never found that to be the case. And I, I recognize I speak in, uh, you know, with a an accent, but when you travel, people, you know, whether it's cab drives or in restaurants, they'll ask where you're from when you stay in America. And we've, my business partner, myself, we've traveled so much and we have never found anything but kindness and friendship and giving, no matter where we've gone. Um, e even to the remotest little places, um, uh, you know, a few years ago, well, just after 9-11, point of fact, my business partner and I went to this small little island called Tikihau. Nobody's ever heard of it. It's in French Polynesia. It's one of the, um, like Bora Bora, Moreo and Tahiti. It's one of those little archipelagos. And um, it was just after 9-11. It was, the, we were on the first flight out of Los Angeles when the airport opened and we'd already booked the trip. And when we were there, there was this tiny little girl, she was about 10, walking along the street in ragamuffin clothes and barefooted on this little dirt street. And she was right by her school and she she asked in French, unfortunately I speak a bit of French, but she asked, she said, are you Americans? And we said, yes. And she put her hand over her heart and she said, all of our hearts go out to you in America. She was only 10 years old. This little island only has a population of 500 people. I don't even know how she knew about 9-11. Right. But she couldn't be more than 10. And I said she was just in these little raggedy clothes. And the way she put her hand over her heart, it was just touching and moving. And we found people like that all over the world. You know, I think most people, they just want to either love or have someone to love or somebody love them. Yeah. And they just want the good things in life. I think yeah. most people want that. 
they may be seeking happiness and it might mean different things to different people. Right. But they're all looking for that peace and happiness, I think. Absolutely. And I, I think it is a really like, it's a really beautiful way to see it is to, to show that about another human is that we're all looking for the same things. We mm -hmm. might, we talked about it before, we might disagree about certain parts of life, but there's so much of just like love and acceptance and being seen as a, as another human that, that just gets disregarded. And what a beautiful story. I mean, that that is so powerful what a what what an experience to be able to have to to meet yeah. this this young woman yes um but the the amazing thing as you said you learned a lot from your traveling and if there's one one wish that i would wish for all people living in america is that they take time and try and travel somewhere outside of america and meet people from a different culture and see mm -hmm. their customs, their ways of life. And it does bring you back, I think, in many ways with a better appreciation of what we have here in, in, in America. You know, we truly are very fortunate and very blessed. We really are. Yeah. And I think we're all, we're, we all make the mistake of perhaps taking so much for granted. Myself yeah. included. I'm not totally. myself in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's hard not to. Of course. Yeah. We get comfortable. Yes. Yeah. In all of your travels, what was the most surprising place you went to? Um, I would have to say Bhutan up in the Himalayas. Um, it was a that truly was a totally different um, way of life and a totally different culture, and very very beautiful people. They were all um, Buddhist. It's a very it's a theocracy. You know, their government is is a third monks and uh, a third a kingdom. There's a king and there's four wives and and then there's the people. So the government split in three different sections. Um, but it's a very, very small country. The people cannot do enough for you. As I said, they're Buddhist. They're very giving in nature. It's a very um, primitive country. Of course, it was closed to the globe for so many years. Um, it was closed to outsiders. And you can't just go there. There's no Hertz rent-a-car or <laughs> things like that. You, you, you are literally taken everywhere. And you can pick up where you want to go, but you are given a tour guide that's there with you from when you wake up in the morning to when you go to bed at night. And the meals are all included, no matter where you stay. And they consider the mountains very sacred, and they don't want people just, you know, walking up and hiking up and throwing their Coke cans and things like that over the mountainside. Right. But the people are just so sweet and so kind and so generous and giving. They're just very giving. No matter what, the tour That's guide it. and the driver, they couldn't do enough for us or wherever we went. Um, they, they don't seem to have any crime rate either, you mm. know. Um, they, they don't have any guns or anything like that. And, um, we stopped. There were two little girls walking along the street one day, and the tour guide said, do you mind if we stop and pick them up? We said, no, not at all. There's room in the car. We picked them up and they were in the car up and down the roads for about five miles. And then they stopped and got out. And we said, are they your family? And he said, no. And I said, um, well, who are they? He said, we don't know. He said, they were just coming back from school. So we stopped and gave them a ride. And I said, isn't that dangerous? I mean, would you do that with your kids here? Let them get in a stranger's car and travel yeah. five miles? We wouldn't do that here. No. But they trust them. He said, well, what if something happened? And they said, well, what would happen to them? They're little girls. I mean, it was such an innocence. Yeah. It? That was so beautiful and so precious. Um, wow. It would be nice if the whole world could be like that, but, you know. Right. Yeah. Can you imagine? I but mean. That was, you... that was a very interesting um, place. It's, it's hard. It's hard to get into, and they limit the number of tourists per year. Yeah. Um, but it was worth it. It was yeah. worth it. That beautiful is, uh, countryside too. Yeah. Beautiful scenery and 
there's not a quarter of a mile in the country uh, that is straight. Mm. You are literally on curves and uphills and down dells and through valleys, most beautiful valleys with pristine streams and rivers that you've ever seen. Beautiful. Mm. Yeah, I've, there's so much of the world. I've seen a good amount, but there's always just so much more. Anytime I talk mm. to somebody or they've traveled somewhere, I'm like, oh man, I haven't been there yet. And I get excited. That's yeah. so, it's so amazing. <laughs> and I think you're so right. I, it's so true that I, th- I, I just wish that people from here would just go and get uncomfortable in another country and just to feel it because then you could be more empathetic when people come here and they're, they're nervous to be here or don't know the language as well. Like go somewhere where you don't know the language and see how confident you are. You know, it's like, just, (laughs) just go over there and feel that and then come back and be like, okay, I'll be a little more empathetic for somebody who's coming to a different culture than their own and trying to do better for themselves. Yeah. Um, I think for anybody coming to America, I know when I came, it, it was, it's so overwhelming. Um, I felt like I was hit by a huge big tidal wave when I arrived here because the energy, is certainly in LA at the time, it, it was just so vast and so huge and everything's so big. And, um, you know, the roads are so wide, the freeways and the motorways and people were driving through Los Angeles city through the underpass on the freeways at, you know, like 60 miles an hour and what have you. Well, you can never drive through the heart of London at 60 miles an hour. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the roads just aren't like that for a no. start, but you know, you, you ordered a sandwich and it was just so huge and it came with so much on the plate. It, everything was just so big. And I, I literally felt very overwhelmed when I first came. It was exciting and it was wonderful. Um, but it was very overwhelming just yeah. because it was just so huge. Everything oh, was I can imagine. Big. Yeah. Man, that is, yeah. I I can't even, especially in that time, like what a, what a change. That's. Yeah. So people coming and at least, you know, uh, America is, is founded in many ways upon British common law and things like that. So a lot of the values are, are and customs are, are, are similar i mean and at least i didn't have to learn a new language but i can imagine for some of these people coming from some of these remote little towns and and villages from other parts of the world it's yeah (laughs) right it's going to be overwhelming like yeah incredibly overwhelming and yeah again i think i i remember a time when i was in denmark and this man at a pizza shop really messed with me. He acted like he didn't know any English. And I was in a small village in Denmark, so I didn't expect him to know English, but I just didn't know any Danish because it's a very incredibly tough language. And I couldn't communicate with him. He was acting as if he couldn't communicate with me. And I just kind of looked at him and was about to walk out of his shop because I couldn't tell him (laughs) anything. And then I turned around to walk out and to quote him, he said, I'm just fucking with you. I can, I can speak English. And then like, we had this great conversation and he was just like (laughs) having a ball messing with me. And he was like, what are you doing here? But the biggest takeaway I got from that was how incredibly small I felt in that moment, because I, I was only capable of speaking one language to this man. And I didn't know that he knew my language because he was a very good actor telling me he had no idea what I was saying. And he shouldn't have to know what I'm saying because I was in a small village in Denmark. Yes. yes. And so it was it was that kind of feeling where I was like, wow, okay, this is how people, this is truly how people feel when they come to a different part of the world and they have no idea what people are saying. And they're saying it quickly and it's big and it's only getting bigger and faster, especially if you come to the bigger cities like New York or LA. I mean, I can't imagine hitting the streets. I remember the first time I went to New York City and the pace of life there was just bonkers to me. It was crazy. <laughs> I, I, I grew up in the States, but I grew up in a smaller town in Ohio and then I'd been to like Columbus and then when I went to New York it was like oh my god this place is monstrous and everyone's <laughs> sprinting everywhere it was crazy yeah. <laughs> um, that's amazing if, you mentioned about the little village though because when most people come to America 
I think they do come through the big cities uh, with the international airports, like Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, or Chicago. Yeah. Um, places like that. They don't come into the little villages like you were in Denmark. Right. They can't. But if they come from those villages, you can you imagine that gentleman in Denmark in that little village who'd probably never been outside of Denmark? Right. If he suddenly came and arrived in New York at, um, at one of the airports and then all of a sudden sees all these subways and things like that. I mean, he, he would be blown away by it, totally yeah. blown away. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I, I can't even imagine because the, the pace of life there was a snail's pace and I loved it. It was so beautiful. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, I can't even, I couldn't even, I can't compare them because they're just on opposite ends of the spectrum of the flow of life. Yes. And I love, I loved it because I, I've lived in big cities and I lived in that small village for two months and it was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, so if I COVID restrictions and everything aside, um, if I came to you and I said, Steven, I have a plane ticket to anywhere in the world, where would you fly to? Oh, wow. That's a real tough one. Where would I fly to? Uh gosh, I'd have to give some thought on that. Um, because there's some places that I'd love to go back to. You know, I'd love to go back to Bhutan. I'd love to go back down to Machu Picchu in South America um, that I've been to before. I'd love to go back there. So many places I'd love to go back to, but then there's so many places that, that are still on my bucket list. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd like I'd love to do a trip down the Amazon. I'd love to go to Antarctica, which is one place I haven't been to. Yes. Um, I'd like to do a cruise down the Rhine River to those um, the imperial countries, Hungary and um, Romania and th those kind of places. Um, I don't know if I could figure out one one actual place. That's a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> It very is. tough but a lovely question that's good that's going to be something i'm going to have to dream about tonight if i had one plane ticket yeah to anywhere in the world yeah where would it be so i like asking it it's fun it's, it throws yes, people it off is. and then especially people that travel it's like how impossible of a choice that is yes <laughs> because there's so much to see because if you get one ticket it's like oh i love that place do i want to go back there or do i want to see the 50 other places i've not been to yes yes yeah. yes indeed you know easter islands that right. that's always fascinating me down there how, how yeah. in the world did they get there yeah um, i don't know there, there's there's still a lot of places to explore you know there's so true. many yeah. <laughs> yeah uh yeah yeah I, i'm with you i'm I, I always ask it and mine's ever changing and i'm just like in my mind i'm like it's more more of an oprah moment of I'll just give you the plane ticket to everywhere you want to go. That would be, if I, if I really had that ability, I would just say 10 places, you're good. I'll send you to all of them. If I had that kind of money, I would love to do that for people. Just like call somebody up and be like, Hey, where do you want to go? Cool. You want to go to Antarctica? Rad. Get five friends. I'll meet you down there. I'll fly, like fly there and then see the world through other people's travel dreams. I think that'd yeah. be amazing. That'd yeah. be a fun way to travel. Yes. <laughs> Um, switching gears, I saw on your website that you, um, you, you are an advocate for Alzheimer's and homeless causes. Talk to me about that for a minute. Um, I think as it relates to the, the homeless, I think it's something very near and dear to me because it's a question of as they say there, but for the grace of God go I. And when I went to live in England, I didn't even have a job to go to. And certainly the first few months when I did have a job, um, when you live in a foreign country, you've got no idea of how much you're going to pay in taxes from your salary. I thought I had a good job. I didn't realize how much income tax they were going to take out of my salary. I was so young and naive and I had this little one room apartment and for the first few months nick all i had to my name was literally my bus fare to work on payday on the last day of the month 
and I used to pray that they'd come and give us our checks before lunchtime. So I quickly run to the bank, put it in the bank, and that was the bank was next door, get some money out to have lunch. Otherwise, I didn't have the money for lunch. And I had to take a couple of evening jobs, and it really was a struggle. You know, I was a kid. I had nothing to offer. I had no experience. Um, but it could just easily be me. I could have just as easily been homeless. Um, yeah. And so it's something that's always been uh, very important to me. Uh, when Certainly when I lived in Los Angeles, sometimes you go down to what they call skid row where the homeless are and it's it's kind of heartbreaking yeah. and I, I recognize that you know sometimes it's drugs and these people are offered places to go to sleep in missions and things like that but they prefer to sleep out on the, the street but how horrible is that so um, there's a local organization here in Las Vegas that um, I try and affiliate with. I'm a very small cog in the wheel because it's all volunteer. And um, they find the donors to donate the food and they provide the volunteers. There's no salaries, there's no overhead. It's literally all done through volunteers. And, you know, once a month, my business department, myself, we always take down, you know, cans of food and vegetables and meat and things like that. But we're just a small cog. They have other people that do that. But it's the volunteers that make that that wheel turn every single day yeah. of the year um, that makes it happen. So, um, yes, it's one thing we do try and do every single month without fail. In the middle of the month, we go out and do the shopping in the supermarket and look for what's on sale and get the biggest bang for our buck than we possibly can. And then at Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter, we always provide some extra and try and come up with hams and turkeys and things like that. So if there's families, they can try and enjoy some kind of a, a Thanksgiving along the lines that the rest of us do. Yeah. Um, Alzheimer's, I... Um, I'm in a writer's critique group and one of the ladies in it has Alzheimer's. She was diagnosed a few years ago with early onset Alzheimer's. And my mother, she passed away from Alzheimer's um, in Australia four years ago. Mm. And my business partner's stepmother, she passed away here in Las Vegas also from Alzheimer's. So I think most people know somebody who is losing somebody or has lost somebody or who has caregiver for um, somebody with Alzheimer's. Um, and Nancy, the lady in my critique group, she's written three books of poetry on the subject. And she published around about the same time as I did. And then she asked me if I would start um, helping her with monthly book signings where we get authors together and have book signings and promote, uh, donate some of the money to Alzheimer's Association. And we did that for a few years. And then, of course, we ran out. You, you can only keep recycling for so long. And right. then a couple of years ago, she and I, I don't know if you're familiar with a play called Love Letters. Mm -mm. Um, it's just a play with two people. They're not acting. It's um, two people. They were childhood. They started writing to each other in childhood and their communications keep going over a period of 50, 60 years. Wow. And it's one of these... It's fun, it's heartbreaking, it's heartwarming, it's uplifting. And we decided we would put that on to try and raise funds for the course. So she and I did that um, a couple of times. Then, of course, COVID came out. Yeah. And um, we've now written a play along the same lines um, that we're just about wrapping up to. Um, we gave one performance of it. It's like Love List, it's two people, but these are two people who have reconnected after 45 years. They used to, they were a prom king and queen at school. They reconnected after 45 years. Then she's diagnosed with Alzheimer's and one of his family members has Alzheimer's and he becomes a caregiver. Oh, wow. And so they are email communicating and the first part's just they're catching up and then 
she reveals that she's forgetting things and then she's diagnosed and then he says, hey, guess what? You know, my family member, this has happened and we're having to bring her into our family. So we've written this two-part play and we're hoping it's it's not a fun subject or easy subject to write about, but right. we're hoping it will be, there's a little bit of humor in it. It can't be too much because it's a serious subject. Yeah. But I think everyone that either gets Alzheimer's or caregivers, we're all totally ignorant. We don't know how to handle it or deal with it. You know, we're, we're just throwing these surprises. Yeah. And I was so intolerant um, to my eternal shame with my mother because I was so impatient with her when she used to repeat herself. Mom, you already told me that five times. Well, it was lack of understanding, lack of knowledge. Yeah. And so what we're trying to do with this play is make it entertaining, but also informative. So anybody who's about to embark on the journey, either as somebody diagnosed with Alzheimer's or dementia, or somebody uh, who's going to become a caregiver, embark on that journey. It would help prepare them both. So that's what we're trying to do. And we gave a performance the beginning of last month to people in the business, if you will, neurologists, uh, people from our Summit Association, a couple of caregivers, some people who'd lost loved ones through Alzheimer's, um, uh, an activities director from a memory care facility who has to entertain people with Alzheimer's. So um, we gave a performance and had a little focus group afterwards so they could tell us what we'd missed out. Um, there are a couple of things they suggested. So we're now back and refining that. And then we hope to get it published and hopefully it'll make a difference. Yeah. That's really beautiful. I mean, especially like you said, there's just, there's so much ignorance around it of just like not knowing how to care for somebody. So I love that you're taking the love that you have for writing and the experience that you had with your mother and putting that out to help other people to kind of, yes, educate, kind of have a little fun with it as well of like make it a tiny bit more easier to attain, to, to come in and listen to it, but then also educate people with it in, in a way that's something that, that they can, they, they can come in and physically see and, and, walk away with something from so i think that's really beautiful well thank you it's, it's it's been an interesting project and we're trying not to make it sound like lectures that we're giving it is right. dialogue back and forth hey you know we've just suddenly discovered this and we didn't we didn't expect this kind of stuff to happen and um so we're trying to make it conversational just like you and i are talking uh, or like we were doing an email so it doesn't come across as standing in front of a room, listening to a, a person lecturing on the subject. And that's yeah. where we're hoping it'll be entertaining and informative. Yeah. As opposed to attending a lecture. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I think that's really beautiful. And the work that you're doing with, with the homeless population, because I like how you made a correlation to even just the simplicity of your first job where you're you're barely making ends meet and you're you're hoping for that paycheck to come in which i think everybody can fully understand and i think so many people are quick to judge anyone who's on the street or doesn't have a home but i'm there were so many times in my when i was drinking that i was one more bad choice away from that and just to think of it that way like even if you just literally don't have enough money even if you're working which can happen here very easily in the States. It can happen anywhere to put yourself into that, that part of it and say, yes, of course there are the stories where somebody has gone too far on their drug addiction, or yes, there are those stories, but there's so many other stories where it truly could have started with just the simple fact that you were, you fell behind two, three paychecks and then you got evicted and like snowball started happening and you didn't know how to, how to fix it. And then you get stuck in that, you know, it's, it's a very easy situation to get yourself into. So I, I think it's really amazing when, when anybody gives back and, and has a heart for people out there who are struggling in any way, shape or form to get them to the streets. And I think it's really beautiful that you're out there doing that for them. 
Well, thank you, Nick. As I said, I think we all need to try and give back because I, for one, have certainly been given so much. I mean, I've had a, a wonderful life. It's, um, you know, living in the different countries as I have and touch wood, um, still in perfectly good health. And I've always had people so supportive and good people in my life. Um, they've just really been good people that have supported and encouraged and helped. And certainly when I came here, you know, with two suitcases and a couple of hundred bucks, it's nothing. Right. Um, to start a new life. But, you know, the, the company I came to work for, they were a small company, but they were all great. They were very supportive and they helped me get on my feet and get going. And um, I've just met a lot of wonderful people. Um, whether it's in America or in England, it's, it's just been wonderful. And because I've been so fortunate, I, it's incumbent on me to give some of that good fortune back. People look after me. It's, I need to look up. People are looking after us all every day, Nick, yeah. and we don't realize it. You know, people yeah. saying things and doing things out there um, that we just not aware what they're yeah. doing or promoting us. Um, so, it's it's the right thing to do and it is better to give than to receive there's no question of it 100 yeah. percent. yeah and also just to see that person like if as you're looking at that person or you're walking by and you're disgusted by that person if you sit there and actually think that person means something to someone you may have no idea who that person is but that person had a mom had a dad has a brother has a sister mm -hmm. there are people out there that are truly sad and probably have no idea where that person is so humanize that person even say hello if you don't have anything to give like even acknowledge them wave to them i mean that that means the world too of just acknowledging and seeing them uh -huh. as a human I mean, that is that you can't underestimate how much that that can help somebody rather than 10,000 more people walking by without even looking at them, like saying hello, sitting down and talking with them, you know, giving them your time. It's it's a really powerful tool as well if you don't have the means to give to somebody. But I think I think that's important to think of it as like that that person means a lot to somebody out there. I think that's a very important point, Nick, and I think it's very key because in my view, I don't think the solution to every issue isn't to throw money off it. Right. It's not always the solution. It is, as you said, taking the time um, and just stopping and talking to these people, um, visiting people in the senior center and things like that who are lonely. Yeah. Um, uh, they had families. They, a lot of them are all, their families have all gone. They've, they've seen the sadness and the heartbreak of losing their spouses, their kids. Some of the kids have died before them. And, um, uh, you know, they just would like somebody to talk to and somebody to listen. Um, yeah. And I, I certainly know when, when I was in LA and we used to go down to the mission and, and help feed the homeless, there was this one lady with two kids and they were there every single time there was like the mother's day and the father's day and the july the fourth and all the holidays she was there with her two kids and i often used to wonder how how did she fall through the cracks these two kids are literally growing up on the street how did she fall through the cracks in the system but obviously she did yeah and, you know, we take her plate of food and say hi and pat her on the back and chat. But there's only so much that we can do and you try and do the best. But, you know, we don't, we haven't walked in her shoes. We don't know right. how she got to where she has and how, right. how is it her two kids are with her. That was the kicker. Yeah. Um, yeah. And our simple solution in our mind doesn't solve everything. As no. much as we would love it to, because we're not, yes. like you said, we're not in their shoes, her shoes, his shoes. Yeah. So you haven't walked that road. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's so powerful. All right. I have two more questions for you. And the first one is what would you want the world to know about you, Stephen? 
Hmm. <laughs> Another tough one. Um, I like them to think that I was somebody who cared, um, that was thoughtful and kind and considerate. They yeah. might not think that, but that's how I'd like them to think that I was a ethical and a good, um, a loyal friend, that I would yeah. be with a friend through thick and thin, and just a kind, try, try to make my little corner of the globe a little bit better. Yeah. So. Well, I can feel that from you. In the hour that I've met you, I can feel how kind and how caring and how warm of a soul you are. So I truly thank you for for sharing that part of you with me and for having this conversation oh nick i've enjoyed it so much and i did put in my newsletter that i hope that i lived up to the expectations <laughs> i was a little bit nervous about applying um to be on a show that's called a beautiful human <laughs> yeah oh, gosh i don't know if i'm going to live up to that you sure did that thing but uh absolutely did. i give it my best shot anyway <laughs> but i've thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you too nick and you're a very special guy too and good luck with your program and thank you thank you i, I see that on podmatch where i met you that you're up there in the rankings and i will go and give you another five-star review that you've got that. so um hopefully it will boost you up further in the rankings and that you'll soon be number one that would be awesome <laughs> i appreciate that okay um, Last question for you before I let you go. If you had the ear of everybody in the world, what would you say to them? What would I, if I had the ear to everybody in the world is, um, I think it would probably just be kind. Yep. Be kind. Uh, can it be more than, does it have to be a couple of words or? Could oh, it just no. be if I had it for a minute or 30 seconds? I've, you can I'd have just say, like forever. I just say be kind, considerate, and thoughtful of your fellow man and your fellow neighbor. Don't criticize unless you've walked in their moccasins. Yep. Yeah, 100%. I think that is a lesson that we all need to push forward more, and more people need to adapt to that. And if you want to not be kind, then go walk in their shoes and then then you have the experience and then you can mm -hmm. figure yourself out from there. But yes. overall, yes, I, I love that sentiment. Be kind, be mm -hmm. just a good human, be a beautifully, beautiful human. There you go. <laughs> and if they want to read something, I would tell them to read Desiderata. Are okay. you familiar with that piece of prose? No. Uh -uh. Go check that Desiderata. I'll send you the link. And beautiful. it's the most beautiful piece of prose. Fantastic. It's absolutely, it's just beautiful. All right. I look forward to it. Okay. I'll All email right. you the link when I get off the air. Thank you so much. And have a beautiful night, Stephen. This has been fantastic. Keep in touch. I love, I do. I love these conversations because I, <laughs> I gain a friend in, in, in the hour that we get to chat. So I've thoroughly enjoyed it, Nick, and I so appreciate being a guest on your show. And I certainly hope your listeners who have tuned in, I thank them for tuning in and I hope they enjoy it as much as I have. Same. Thank you, brother. Okay. See you. you. take care, friend. All Stay right. safe. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Beautifully Human podcast. To hear more beautiful stories from beautiful humans, follow us on Spotify and rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at the Beautifully Human Podcast. Peace signs up.